Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The world of commercial deep-sea fishing is murky, rife with abuses, wage slavery, and, of course, depletion of the ocean's bounty. Off West Africa, it's clear that even among a bad bunch, China's fleet stands out as the most ruthless of the lot. And it was a simpler time when what you had to worry about being taken from your car was hubcaps or hood ornaments. These days, it's catalytic converters. They're packed with precious metals. And in America, they're disappearing in crazy numbers. First up, though. For the meeting of the 118th Congress of the United States, the House will come to order. Yesterday, at the opening of the new session of the United States Congress, the first task for Republicans was to elect a new Speaker of the House. They were set to take the gavel after four years of being in the minority, but they couldn't stop arguing over who should have it. The role now will be called and those responding to those names will indicate by surname the nominee of their choosing. The reading clerk will now call the roll. Baird. McCarthy. Balderson. McCarthy. Ballant. Jeffries. Banks. Usually, this is a straightforward exercise. The chosen speaker is almost always the leader of the majority party. But the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, failed to win the 218 votes he needed to assume the role. No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. It's a troubled start for the Republicans coming after their lackluster performance in the midterms, and it bodes ill for the rest of this Congress. Yesterday, the House Republican Caucus was trying to elect a speaker. That vote went through three rounds and was not decisive. Until yesterday, the election of a House speaker hadn't gone beyond a first ballot in 100 years. John Prito is the U.S. editor of The Economist and the presenter of Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. And actually, it had only gone beyond a first ballot once since the Civil War. So to do three rounds of voting and not yet elect a speaker is pretty extraordinary. About 20 House Republicans withheld their support for Kevin McCarthy, who's the front runner, trying to get his way to 218 votes. As time went on, McCarthy actually lost support rather than gained it. And after that third round of voting, the House adjourned without a speaker. 
And remind our listeners what the House Speaker does and why Mr. McCarthy wants the job so badly. Well, the House Speaker presides over the House. It's a really big job in American politics. You're third in line to the presidency after the vice president. Without a speaker, no other business can be done in the House. So the House can't consider legislation. It can't even formally swear in new members. Kevin McCarthy has wanted this job for a really long time. He first ran for Speaker in 2015, if you remember, John. And he's been close to getting it twice before. Both times he was blocked by fellow Conservatives. That said, it's worth noting he's miles ahead of everyone else in the voting. So this is not a total disaster for him, although it is pretty embarrassing. And John, why have Conservatives been blocking Kevin McCarthy? Give us a sense of who he is and what he stands for. Well, if you read some of the objections from his fellow House Republicans, they're really that he's been around for such a long time. So if you look at Representative Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, he issued a statement on January the 1st in which he essentially said, you know, Kevin McCarthy's been there for 14 years and the Republican leadership has piled failure upon failure. And so it's pretty hard to think of him as a new broom. Some of these criticisms are a bit contradictory. So he's perceived by some other Republicans, some of his critics as being beholden to special interests and lobbyists. He's also somebody who's been a prodigious fundraiser for House Republicans, and those things rather go together, unfortunately. One other thing that I would add, John, is that he's changed tack so often that there's a perception that he's squishy. People don't really know what he stands for. Perhaps the clearest illustration of this was his attitude towards Donald Trump, highly supportive, then after January the 6th, critical, and then when it became clear that Republicans weren't abandoning Donald Trump en masse, he went to pay court to him at Mar-a-Lago. So that's just a a small example of what's perceived to be a a generalised pattern by his critics. And John, who's voting against him? Most of those who opposed Kevin McCarthy are self-described members of the so-called Freedom Caucus. That's a really hard group to define. It began life as a shrink-the-government, low-tax, low-spending group, and has since morphed into a kind of pro-Donald Trump, America-first populist MAGA caucus. I mean, all of the Republican Party is pretty much like that, but these folks are at the extreme end of that. They're also the House members most associated with attempts to overturn the 2020 election result. But John, you covered this stuff for years. What do you make of it all? Well, John, it's a bit of a clown show. It does have its humorous aspects. One of them is Matt Gates, who is a far-right gadfly who is mooted nominating Donald Trump for speaker, sent a letter to the architect of the Capitol, which is the office that oversees the physical facilities of the Capitol, complaining that someone is illegally occupying the Speaker's office. His name is Kevin McCarthy. He's moved a bunch of furniture in there. How do we get him out? (laughs) So part of the distrust is personal, but there must be some grounds on which the two sides can negotiate. Has McCarthy offered any concessions to the the far right? And if so, what, what are they? He has offered a bunch of concessions. I mean, just to step back a little bit, one of the extraordinary things here is this job that he's trying so hard to get, is a hellish job in many ways. Yes, it's prestigious and powerful, and so that explains why politicians want it. But if you look at the history of previous Republican speakers, you know, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, the House Republican Party has this revolutionary dynamic whereby new people come in, promise to sweep away the establishment, in turn become the establishment themselves, and then get swept away. McCarthy is now in the position of trying to be the de facto head of the Republican establishment in the House of Representatives. And already people are trying to make it easier to sweep him away. So one of the concessions is that he's lowered the threshold required to trigger a vote to remove him. And that could weaken his position quite significantly if he actually is elected Speaker after another few rounds of voting. 
Another demand is that the House Republican Super PAC, which is a fundraising vehicle, should stay out of open primaries. That reflects a frustration that McCarthy, through his support and money behind some moderate candidates or candidates perceived as being more moderate in the recent midterms, and some of his more hardline opponents don't like that approach either. So if not him, then who? Is there another candidate that the hard right is coalescing behind? Well, not really. I mean, there is one in the sense that about 20 of them voted for Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio. Jordan himself is supporting McCarthy and has said he doesn't want the job of speaker. So that would appear to be a non-starter. And also, 20 votes is a long way away from the 218 you need to become speaker. So it's not clear there's an alternative at the moment. One possibility might be Steve Scalise, who's McCarthy's second in command. He's a congressman from Louisiana. He hasn't put himself forward yet. So there's a way for this one to run, but McCarthy still is in pole position. So how long can this go on? Well, in theory, indefinitely. I mean, just to go back to some of those precedents from the 19th century, I mean, it has in the past taken two months to elect a speaker. I don't think that's going to happen this time around. My bet would be that the House Republicans land on McCarthy at some point in the not-too-distant future. But I don't think I thought it would be this hard in the first place. So what happens now? What happens today? Well, the House resumes voting at noon today. It may be that there's been some deal-making since yesterday, or it may be that those who objected to Kevin McCarthy are still holding out. Members have to keep voting until someone gets a majority. One possibility that's not going to happen, but is kind of intriguing to think about, House Democrats could, in theory, support a different Republican candidate, and you could get a kind of cross-party coalition for Speaker. I think that might be rather a healthy thing for American politics, but it's, it's very unlikely to happen. So we could be waiting a few more days before a Speaker's elected, or we could see a deal done quickly and Kevin McCarthy crowned today. So John, let's end by taking a step back. What does this say, do you think, about how, how Republicans will govern now that they hold a majority in the House? Well, I think it underlines something that we maybe knew already, which is Republicans are not going to do a huge amount of governing. Not a lot comes out of Congress typically when Congress is divided, by which I mean not a lot of really big pieces of legislation. Of course, post offices get renamed. A lot of the regular stuff happens. You know, The Department of Defense will be funded, etc. I think it also suggests that whoever does finally land this job of Speaker of the House for the Republicans is going to have an extremely difficult time attempting to wrangle their caucus. You know, trying to herd House Republicans is really like trying to herd bison. It's only got harder over the past few years. And one final thing I'd add is that you might assume that this show of division is terrible for Republicans electorally. I'm not sure that previous experience suggests that that's in fact the case. You know, there can be quite a lot of chaos in the House of Representatives without it necessarily damaging the Republican Party's electoral prospects. That's been the evidence from the past. So yes, it's a mess. Yes, it affects the way America's governed. But I don't think it's ultimately going to be all that damaging for the Republican Party electorally, though perhaps it should be. All right, John, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, John. Thank you. 
You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Along the coast of West Africa, lots of fisher folk have little left to catch. The Atlantic, once brimming with all the commercial fish needed to support local economies, is turning up fewer and fewer of them. Up and down the once bountiful coast, fish stocks are being whisked away by boats sponsored by the Chinese government. In the notoriously shady world of deep-sea trawling, Beijing is engaging in some particularly fishy business. China plays a huge role in the oceans and along the coasts of other countries, as well, of course, as along its own coast. Dominic Ziegler writes Banyan, our column on Asian affairs. It has the world's biggest so-called distant water fleet, and that fleet has been encouraged by China's central and local governments to go out and search for fish. And it's a global endeavor. These boats really can stay at sea for months and sometimes years at a time. Now, it's important to say that China isn't the only country that's involved in distant water fishing. Other countries include Japan, South Korea, Spain, and Taiwan. But as a fleet, it's by far the world's most damaging. So why is that what sets China's fleet apart? The most obvious thing that sets China's fleet apart from those of other countries is size. Some people reckon that China has 3,600 distant water fishing vessels. It's roughly as many as the next three biggest countries combined. Another factor is that, as with any economic endeavor carried out by Chinese entities, there's a political or a geopolitical dimension. China really consciously wants to project its state power and influence overseas. And its fishing fleets are part of that project. Many of these vessels are state-owned. Another difference is the sheer rapaciousness of China's fleet and its lack of scruples. And the consequence of that plays out in several dimensions. One is overfishing. Fish stocks are being depleted severely thanks to Chinese efforts. Another is illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. That takes place even on licensed vessels. And another dimension is a human rights one. Often foreign crews are hired and they're very often mistreated appallingly. And so where is all of this going on? It's going on around the world, but it's taking place in particular in West Africa. Beijing has agreed contracts for fisheries operations with a number of countries, but half of the projects that have been signed for are in West Africa. And that includes countries like Senegal and Mauritania. The projects include the right not just for Chinese vessels to fish in states' coastal waters, but it also allows Chinese operations to be established ashore. And one notable industry, it processes a fish food that then goes to aquaculture farms, either in China or elsewhere. And then the fish from those farms is sold, usually to prosperous markets around the world. Now, that has had a powerful and 
not particularly welcome impact on local fishing in the region. Local fishers, artisanal fishers, who depend on small-scale fisheries near the coast for putting food on their own family table and to sell to local markets, well, they're forced into direct competition with Chinese industrial fishing concerns, and the contest is lopsided. And the impact is that local fishing communities are severely hurt as fish stocks collapse, and the consequences of that also include increased migration. There are numbers of people from West Africa, Senegal in particular, who try to make the dangerous journey across the seas to Spain's Canary Islands in search of work. It leads to increased gang operations ashore as fit young fishermen swap careers. And it even leads to forced prostitution amongst women in the fishing communities who see their incomes fall. So why West Africa in particular? What is it that's attractive? What attracted Chinese fleets to West Africa was not only once bountiful fishing stocks, it was also a a lax regulatory environment ashore. These are countries with weak institutions, poor enforcement. If you are found out breaking the rules, for instance, using too fine a net or fishing illegally for protected species, well, the fines are desultory. They're the cost of doing business. Not only that, these countries are open to corruption. So even, for instance, in the case of Ghana, where foreign vessels are not allowed to fish, a large part of Ghana's fishing fleet is actually Chinese-owned with well-connected Ghanaian businessmen or politicians as fronts. So in a way, there's a degree of state capture. So is there any way to put a crimp on this, this global industrial scale? Well, there are a number of ways, and they're starting to be applied. One of the key planks for this is to know what exactly is going on. And here, technology, in particular satellite imagery, is increasingly helping fishing authorities, states, and NGOs keep track of where boats are, even if they turn off their transponders that are supposed to transmit their position. But of course, pinpointing illegality is one thing, going after it is another. And here, of course, the problems of weak enforcement, the shortage of enforcement personnel in so many countries is a challenge. But a fresh way to pursue illegal fishing bosses is to follow the money, in effect, to apply the practices that were used against the mafia to businesses that hide their identity and shuffle their money around the world. But as you say, a lot of this is just straight down the line illegal. Is there no means to approach this from a legal standpoint? Pursuing illegal fishing is extremely hard, but there's much more interest from states than others in doing it, because after all, illegal fishing destroys the livelihoods of many local communities. There's another important element, which is fisheries subsidies. Many countries subsidize their fishing fleets, and China is the biggest subsidizer. Without those subsidies for fuel and for building new vessels, a lot of the illegal activity and a lot of the dodgy stuff from the West African coast couldn't possibly take place. For instance, the extremely destructive practice of deep-sea bottom trawling, which is carried out by Chinese vessels in West Africa, wouldn't be viable without diesel subsidies that allows these operations to take place. There's been some progress at the WTO in terms of cutting fishing subsidies. It's a start. It can go much further, but it will make a difference. A final point, of course, is a country's self-image. Although China's activities are rapacious and often at one level or another state directed. They're not good for China's image. And it's increasingly clear that uh, some parts of the government are aware of this. But even if on some level China is essentially shamed into following the rules more, what more could be done? There's a great need for much more transparency. For instance, 
poor countries could make public the agreements that they sign with China. That would be very, very welcome light on a murky area. Another area is that more countries should insist that vessels broadcast their position, and the same should go for the high seas. Money that's paid to coastal states for fishing contracts, that money should be allocated towards strengthening enforcement. That would go a long way too. And then there are things that suppliers, wholesalers, and consumers in richer countries could do too. For instance, insisting on proof of provenance for fish that is sold in supermarket chains. So there's a whole host of approaches to deal with the scourge of illegal fishing and of overfishing. And if China really wanted to do something to improve its image as the operator of by far the world's largest fishing fleet, well then, why doesn't it lead the way on these initiatives? It's something certainly that some inside the Chinese establishment are starting to think about. Dominic, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. crime is bad when the police are the ones getting robbed. That's what happened in September to the San Francisco Police Department. Four vehicles parked outside their Special Operations Bureau were stripped of their catalytic converters. But it's far from a unique case. Those car parts have become a target of thieves across America. A catalytic converter is a component that's attached to a vehicle's underbelly that helps process and control fuel emissions. Alexandra Suich-Bass is The Economist's senior correspondent for politics, technology, and society. A lot of people have never even heard of what a catalytic converter is, but they know as soon as it's been stolen because their vehicle gives basically a death rattle. There's a few reasons why we've seen such a big spike in the theft of catalytic converters. The main reason is that the value of some of the precious metals that are within them has increased pretty significantly. For example, rhodium has seen its price per ounce quadruple since January 2019. The crime is also pretty easy to do. It takes only a minute sometimes less, sometimes a bit more, with a powerful saw underneath a car to remove the catalytic converter. And major cities have seen a decline in tourism, so there's less opportunity to do smash and grabs. So in cities like San Francisco, that's part of the reason we're seeing a rise in this type of theft as well. It's a crime of opportunity, and thieves have shifted their attentions toward it. So theft of these things is up not just a little bit. It is one of America's fastest growing crimes. We still don't have data for the year 2022. But in 2021, the National Insurance Crime Bureau tracked more than 52,000 reported incidents. That's about 12 times more than in 2019. And that likely underestimates the amount we're seeing across the country. One of the signs of how prevalent and lucrative the theft of catalytic converters is came to light in November when the Department of Justice charged 21 people in five states as part of a catalytic converter theft ring. People sold their stolen converters to an auto shop in New Jersey, which in turn sold the extracted metal powders to a refinery. The value of the metals was $550 million. So how are people responding with this new thing to worry about on the the underside of your car? 
It's both illegal and loud to drive a car without a catalytic converter. So people have no choice to replace it whether or not they can afford it. And replacing it is really expensive. Depending on the type of car, replacement can go anywhere from a few hundred dollars to several thousand dollars. Some victims are defensively installing cages around their converters to make them harder to steal. But one of my friends in San Francisco actually told me that her catalytic converter and cage were stolen for a second time. So it's by no means an assurance. And in a very cruel twist of fate, the climate conscious are actually punished most often. That's because hybrid vehicles often have two catalytic converters and can contain more precious metals. So that's led to the targeting of Priuses and other hybrid cars. The hardest hit state has been California, which has the toughest fuel emission standards and has a lot of hybrid vehicles. In 2021, about 37% of catalytic converter thefts occurred in California. So how to stop it? If you put a cage around it and people are going to steal the cage too, how to reduce these thefts? Lawmakers are trying to figure that out. In 2022, at least 22 states have passed legislation focused on catalytic converters, and that's up from a dozen or so in 2021. There are a whole range of solutions from requiring new rules and documentation to sell catalytic converters to increasing the penalties associated with the theft. So in California, we saw two bills signed into law in 2022 which included regulations around who can sell them. That'll go into effect in January. Another one, interestingly, that would have required vehicle identification numbers to be etched onto catalytic converters was defeated because auto dealers lobbied against it. They said it would be too expensive to do. So identification numbers are really important because without them, it's hard to prove that catalytic converters were stolen. So law enforcement officers and prosecutors have complained that unless they've stopped someone in the midst of stealing a catalytic converter, it can be very hard to prove that the catalytic converter belonged to someone else's car and that it was obtained unlawfully. But I think there's absolutely a fair question to ask of whether manufacturers or dealers should be playing a part in trying to make theft of these harder to do. So do you think going at this with with legislation is going to be the way to solve it? I think it's worth a try, but it's hard to prove that we've seen state laws achieve much so far. For example, a law in Texas, which was passed in 2021, places some restrictions on the sale of catalytic converters and increases the punishment for stealing them. But because every state has a different law, we're seeing thieves continue to steal catalytic converters in Texas, but just sell them in states where sales restrictions are looser. There's now a lot of talk about how the federal government should get involved. One bill that's been proposed in Washington, D.C., called the Preventing Auto Recycling Theft Act, or the PART Act, would require identification numbers to be etched on converters and establish stealing them as a federal offense. There's actually bipartisan support, and I think people on both sides of the aisle who see how greatly this crime is affecting their constituents are interested in achieving something in the new year. Thanks very much for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you for having me, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.